The Water Values Podcast, Session 107. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thank you for joining me. Well, we have a great show for you today. Um, we have Pat Mulroy, formerly of the Las Vegas Valley Water District and the Southern Nevada Water Authority, now with the UNLV, uh, William S. Boyd School of Law. She's a great guest. She needs no introduction, uh, but she is going to talk to us today about water leadership and a number, number of other topics. Uh, and I think you're going to find it fascinating. I think she gives a great glimpse of what utilities are going to look like and be doing in the future. So uh, hang on for that. Uh, we also have uh, Reese Tisdale back with us for a Bluefield on Tap segment. Uh, but before we get to that, where well, Reese is going to do a great job talking about uh, WIFIA and the implications that he sees, uh, he and the Bluefield research team see uh, for WIFIA. Uh, well, before we get to that, um, uh, just a couple of housekeeping items as normal. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or, or your preferred uh, podcast directory. Uh, we picked up two more five-star ratings since the uh, last podcast. I want to thank Kevin and Nick for those ratings, uh, and they left great reviews to boot. Uh, Kevin says, as one who works in water planning, I find the podcast has a great variety of topics and has just the right amount of detail. It's a great way to learn about what's happening in other states. Thank you very much, Kevin. Great review. Really appreciate it. And uh, Nick uh, provided his review that says, without a doubt, David is supplying an immediate need to disseminate important and entertaining knowledge from the water industry. If you are a student, entry level, or experienced, I guarantee you will enjoy David's guests, regular contributors, and David himself. Five out of five. Well, thank you very much, Nick. Appreciate the kind words. Uh, and if, uh, if you're like Nick or Kevin and you've been enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating or review on uh, those podcast directories I mentioned earlier. Uh, the other thing, uh, thank you all for your donations, those who have contributed. Very generous. Uh, you, there's a little uh, yellow PayPal donate button on the website, thewatervalues.com. And you can go there, any denomination. It just helps keep the water flowing and the information flowing uh, with the podcast uh, in terms of, you know, taking care of our hosting fees and things like that. So I uh, would really appreciate uh, if, if you have enjoyed the podcast, a, uh, uh, you supporting the podcast in any denomination you see fit. Uh, with that said, let's get on to the Bluefield on Tap segment. And here's Reese Tisdale, the president of Bluefield Research. And we're going to talk about WIFIA. Well, Reese, hey, welcome back to the Bluefield on Tap segment. Great to have you with us again. Uh, today we're talking a little infrastructure and WIFIA. Uh, and for those of you who don't know what WIFIA is, Reese, could you kind of fill us in on what WIFIA is? So simply put, it is the Water Infrastructure and Finance and Innovation Act, Dave. I think it's, uh, it's gotten a lot of attention recently because there have been some awards um, it was basically awards that were provided or presented by the EPA uh, to 12 of 43 applicants um, in the U.S. But I think, you know, let's step back for a second. I guess, first of all, it's, it's great to talk to you again. We jump right <laughs> yeah, into it. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I think the, the, the main point is, is that, look, there's been a focus on infrastructure in the U.S. over the past couple of years. Everybody 
in the water industry has been excited about it. And so there have been a number of programs that have been sources of funding for infrastructure investment, everything being, you know, the bond markets, but also what we're seeing is the state revolving funds have been a, has been a critical source of investment. And then uh, a couple of years ago during the Obama administration, WIFIA was launched as a program. And it's been in play for quite some time, but it seems to be that actually the uh, it's starting to bear fruit, uh, for lack of a better way to put it. Yeah, so, uh, I, I th- and WIFIA was, it's really modeled off of TIFIA, which was in the transportation side. And so, you know, in terms of, we'll, uh, we'll get to the awards kind of a little bit, a little bit later and what those, those mean, but um, the can you talk a little about the size of the awards? You know, what, how much money are we talking here? Yeah, so basically it's really, it's, it's, it's for loans. And so the federal government through the EPA provides about, uh, for this cycle in 2017, about $25 million in subsidies. And what that basically enables is about $1.5 billion of, of low interest, low cost or low interest loans on water infrastructure projects. Um, that's sort of the dollars. I think, you know, when the initial invitation for applicants came out uh, earlier in the year, I believe it was February, there were about 43 applicants submitted proposals, which was gonna lead to, if you just use those applications, a total of six, six and a half billion dollars of loans that would be granted for projects and water infrastructure. But being budget, uh, being what they are, obviously they couldn't accept all applications and the, the number this year was 25 million, which is one and a half billion dollars uh, of loans. Got it, got it. So uh, in terms of, of can, can you frame this for us in terms of the overall infrastructure needs versus the amount of money allocated to WIFIA this year? Yeah, so basically, you know, our forecast, I think we talked some time ago, uh, it was either last year or earlier this year, we talked about, you know, the municipal infrastructure budgets in the U.S. Uh, Bluefield had done a forecast, and we were estimating over there, forecasting over the next 10 years, $532 billion of capital investment required by municipal utilities in the U.S. So it's pretty substantial. Um, so putting it in perspective, quite honestly, this is uh, a drop in the bucket, as we, we've been saying around here in our offices, in that it's not the big infrastructure investment that everybody has been hoping for. I think everybody's expecting it would be uh, ultimately that the government would come out with something even greater than WIFIA, but this plan has been in place for some time. And you got to start somewhere. Let me put it that way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I guess that's that's kind of where I'm getting at. Is this is, is do you see the WIFIA program uh, growing and expanding over time uh, so that it does kind of blossom out and and ultimately uh, become more than just a drop in the bucket in the infrastructure funding puzzle? Well, I, I quite honestly, I I see something. I see it sort of you know, going at the same rate. I mean, it's one program in the, in the broader pool of needs uh, as a source for funding. And I think that's the challenge is what's happened in Washington, whether, and on both sides of the aisle, quite honestly. I'm not, there, there's a different uh, philosophy or ideology about where public funding should come from to support water infrastructure or infrastructure as a whole. Um, should the government, federal government just stop being 
uh, should they outlay funds directly into infrastructure projects or should it be public-private partnerships or, or private capital? And that's the big challenge that we're seeing. The, the Trump administration leans more heavily towards the private sector, whereas uh, it seems on the other side of the aisle, the Democrats are looking more towards the government to do so. But as a result, so far, it's been a non-starter. We've had infrastructure weeks. We've talked about infrastructure for the past six months. But my uh, fear is that the bloom is falling off the rose in, as far as the excitement for water infrastructure investment goes. So what's going to happen is that it's still going to continue to rely the municipal water infrastructure uh, utilities and, and cities are going to have to continue relying on the bond markets. They're going to have to continue relying on their rates. Uh, increasing rates, which has been a trend, uh, which is, I think we've talked about outpacing inflation. And then is anything else going to come out of the woodwork anytime soon? Quite honestly, I don't see it. And I think that's the big fear. And I think on the water infrastructure side, to put a more positive spin on, on this, is that this is where really innovation, whether it be financial innovation, technology innovation, and business model innovation really comes into play because if that changes within the existing landscape or framework, then the efficiencies can be gained, and that's really where an opportunity is. Got it, got it. So I, I think that's going to play perfectly into uh, today's uh, interview with Pat Mulroy, who gets into a lot of these uh, issues about, you know, where she sees the future going. And she she kind of addresses some of those specific points you mentioned, uh, Reese. And so, uh, I, you know, for those listeners, stay tuned. You'll, you're will you really going to like Pat Mulroy. But, Reese, uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for filling us in on Withia and kind of your your perspective on uh, what the Withia investment means. So uh, thanks again. Really appreciate having you back on. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Sounds great, Dave. Talk to you soon. Uh Bye. Well, as always, Reese does a fantastic job on the Bluefield on Tap tap segments. I really appreciate his time and uh, coming on. And and today's segment on WIFIA, obviously very topical, uh, very important because we, you know, have said repeatedly on this uh, on this podcast uh, that infrastructure is a is just a, a huge looming issue out there, and you don't need to listen to the podcast to understand that. I understand, but but uh, I, I just think Reese does a good job putting things in perspective and providing that great market intelligence uh, that Bluefield Research provides. Uh, well, now it's time for our feature interview with Pat Mulroy. Uh, you are really gonna love. This interview, she does a she does a great job. If you listen to the uh, the earlier podcast, uh, I think it was podcast eighty three, where she was a panelist. Uh, you know she has strong opinions, and she does a great job explaining them. And she's going to do the same thing for you here. Uh, so, without further ado, let's open the valves, fasten the seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Pat, thanks so much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time, and uh, thanks for coming on. And, and you've got some great news. You're a new grandmother, uh, so congratulations for that. It's, it's great to, to be one of your first interviews after uh, becoming a grandmother. Thanks, David. In fact, you are my first interview. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. So uh, uh, before we get into the meat of the, the interview, can you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? I, I know a lot of people are going to know who you are, but I think it's always good to, to, to get the individual's uh, perspective on their own career and how they got interested in water. Well, actually, I came at it not at, at 
having any particular interest in water. Um, I came to the Water District in 1985 to run the administrative portion of um, the utility. So I was the deputy general manager over administration. So I had finance and HR and all those administrative functions you need to have an organization run. And uh, I had extensive background for the last almost uh, nine years prior to that working um, in intergovernmental relations, whether it was with the legislature, with the federal government, um, or with other local jurisdictions. And in 1989, um, things started getting rather tight here in Southern Nevada. And it looked like we were all gonna run out of water around 1992, 1993 at the outside. And so as you can well imagine, as the West is wont to do, um, we began a water war amongst the various entities. And the, um, my predecessor um, went to another uh, um, place of employment and the board asked me to take over as general manager of the water district. So I always came at this without any of the traditional preconceived notions that most people in Western water have. Um, I had no emotional attachment to it. Um, I wasn't one of those um, individuals who, you know, would live or die by first in time, first in right, all those fundamentals of Western water that are more religion than they are law. Um, and I was able to find a pathway to work with the other entities to create the Southern Nevada Water Authority. And so I've always come at it as a more of an exercise in intergovernmental and inner um, human relations than one of water science or water engineering. To me, it was, um, water was always defined by the way people reacted and interacted with it. Right. So that's a really interesting perspective. Uh, and, and, uh, how, how is that outsider perspective kind of, uh, uh, you know, did it take some while to break some barriers down as you were working through that with all the, the people who have been raised and steeped in that water, Western water tradition? Or, you know, how did that? I think the greatest advantage it gave me is it allowed me unencumbered to listen to opposing views um, and try to understand them uh, without having that instant visceral reaction of being against it um, and taking the opposing view because I mean one of the biggest frustrations I always had is we all talked past each other. We were all very very good at sitting at a table and espousing our particular point of view or our particular need or our particular legal interpretation. We weren't particularly um, skilled at listening to the perspective that was coming at us from across the table and I think Developing that skill and the ability to do that has probably been the single most helpful um, skill development during this whole time. 
you know, very interesting. So, so when you kind of look forward and see what skill sets um, that the next generation of water leaders is going to need, uh, what what are, do you feel are the key components of those skill sets and the educational training that the that the next generation of water leaders is going to need? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked me that question because it's something that I've spent a tremendous amount of time thinking about, particularly now that I'm in the university environment housed here at the law school, and I'm not sure that there are a lot of programs, if any that really allow a individual who wants to go into a water resource management, water leadership role, if you will, at the end of uh, their education cycle and start working their way up. I'm not sure it exists because what we tend to do is we create specialists. Um, we, I cannot tell you how many times going around the country, giving speeches in various universities. I've been asked by the students, what do, I, what do I major in, in order to get into the field? And it's, a, it's almost an impossible question to answer because uh, law schools produce lawyers. Um, engineering schools produce engineers. Hydrologists um, and the sciences produce hydrologists and geologists. And each has a very unique way of viewing the subject matter. In order to be able to work through all the nuances of this in a way that allows you to set policy or develop policy with your peers or with um, your would-be adversaries, you have to have a smattering of everything. You have to understand water law, yet not be a lawyer. You have to understand hydrology, yet not necessarily be a hydrologist. You need to understand engineering and not necessarily be an engineer. That kind of rounded education that brings to the table all those various skill groups is a um, a field of study and a, and a uh, pathway that I think the universities are still looking at developing because it is a very different kind of degree. I mean, the last thing, and I've teased the dean of the law school here uh, mercilessly, I said the last thing um, the water sector needs going forward is more litigators. What the water sector needs is mediators, facilitators, negotiators, people who can find common ground in middle road, middle of the road, not those that are going to wind their client up to be the pit bull that's going to go for broke in a in a court setting. And got it. So it sounds like it's uh, it's almost a liberal arts education uh, needed for for the next generation of water leaders. And and I'm a I'm a an alumnus of a liberal arts school, and so uh, that's what they always kind of talked about. Know a little about a lot, and that'll give you perspectives on how to how to see um, the other parties other parties' wants and needs, and kind of fashion a a compromise out of that. Um, from an education standpoint. But I think having that liberal arts background, there needs to be a tremendous amount of respect on our part 
for those that have the technical background. I mean, those that are steeped in the sciences and in the engineering portions of it. Because the last thing you need is a liberal arts person building you a dam. That's <laughs> not really something that sounds particularly safe to me. Yeah. I, well, I, I agree with you completely on that piece. Uh, and the other, the other component that sounded interesting was, uh, and I think you, you kind of mentioned this earlier, was uh, kind of the people skills uh, that almost can't be taught. Um, you just need to be good with people and how to read body language and how to, you know, read what other, other folks are, are saying with not necessarily verbally, but, but otherwise, and just uh, uh, be able to, to get along, so to speak. Um, right. And to some extent, a liberal arts education can give you a little bit better footing in that regard than something that's very fo laser focused and detail focused. Yeah, and, and and so how using all that skill set, how how do you uh, foresee? You know, how do you get people on board to work towards a common goal? Uh, you know, and let's just let's just use the Colorado River as an, as an example that you've got a, a lot of experience with. How are you able to get people on board to start talking through the conversation uh, to, to find solutions? Now, I understand the there's more to be done, more work to be done, but but what? How do you how do you start that process, or you know, what skills did you use to to get that conversation going? Well, I think there were several of us who came to the same realization right about the same time, which was in the early 90s that the way the states interacted with one another needed to change. And I think we all recognized that there needed to be something in it for everyone because every state has a need, right? Especially going into a um, century in which water is a lot more scarce than it was um, 20 years ago. I mean, the 21st century is going to be a much drier century than the 20th century. I think the early um, implications of climate change are playing themselves out in some of these drought scenarios that we're beginning to experience. And it was a real shift in mindset that there can be no winners or losers in the basin, if you will, amongst the river community states. And I think having gone through the litigation that our predecessors went through in the 60s and 70s with, you know, court cases like Arizona v. California, which I always throw out there as the greatest example of how litigation doesn't get you anywhere. Because uh, at the end of the day, those that won didn't really win. They ended up losing. Arizona won the lawsuit only to have California come back through the through a act of Congress and subordinate Arizona's water right. I mean, so you're never going to have a become out of this a true winner. So having something that is more of an equal playing field that says, all right, every one of us has something that they have to bring home. Every one of us has vulnerabilities. Every one of us has strains on our water supply. How do we address every one of the needs that are out there in a fashion that begins to recognize the system as a whole?
Yeah, so you really have to have a willing partner. It takes two to tango, and if you have one person that's just bent on litigation, um, it, it's, it, it sounds to me like from your perspective that it's just going to take a lot more education of that, that party that's bent on litigation before you can uh, work towards these collaborative solutions. It's a recognition. It's a recognition that we flat don't have the time to go through a 20-year lawsuit. If we were to be combative, and the minute you go to court, conversation ends. The minute you go to court, the ability to sit down at the table and come up with a joint solution, a common solution, is gone. And it's going to take a lot of time to get back to that place. So it's a recognition that the only pathway that um, we can follow that allows us to really address the issues in a time frame in which they're meaningful and can make a difference is through collaboration and cooperation and not through litigation. Right. Now, curious, on the Colorado River, how significant is it that the, the feds kind of hold a hammer that says, if you guys can't figure it out, we're going to? And what, how does that help with the recognition part of the, part of the issue? Well, that only works up to a certain degree. Um, thanks to Arizona v. California, the Secretary of Interior is the water master of only the lower basin. He only has control of water from Lake Mead down to Imperial. Um, the upper basin was never involved in the lawsuit. And hence, the Secretary of Interior has virtually no control over how the upper basin states um, manage the water resources. What binds them and brings them to a common position is both the compact from 1922 and the subsequent upper basin compact that then, um, by a percentage basis, divided the waters amongst themselves. Those documents are far more powerful than the Secretary of Interior. Now, there are limitations for the Secretary even in the lower basin. And I have often laughed and said, you know, there, because of that same Supreme Court case, there are agricultural districts, for example, in the lower basin that he can never really come after, he can really never touch their water rights because they are prior perfected rights and these rights were awarded to these districts by the Supreme Court. And I laughingly said over and over again, the, the Secretary of Interior can do cartwheels down Pennsylvania Avenue and he can't touch certain water rights. So does he have some ability? Yes, he can make life very difficult. He can particularly affect the urbanites in the lower basin because their priority water right usually lies um, at the end of the food chain. So can he um, start exercising some authorities that make things difficult? Yes. The greatest tool that the secretary has is the threat of doing something. Uh, not the actual execution of the threat, but getting the, as Bruce Babbitt often said, the uh, herding the cats to the table. Um, you threaten the hammer, 
and then you are willing to cooperate with the state and the users for a common solution. Terrific, terrific. So uh, we've been talking a lot about water leadership now. Uh, you've written a book and put together a book called uh, The Water Problem, uh, and it's it's uh, there's a number of people that have been in, involved and wrote wrote portions of the book. But I I'd like to ask you initially, you know, why now? Why now for the book? Um, and why don't you give us a little background on what the book is? Well, the book was intended to be a snapshot in time of where water utilities are, urban water utilities particularly in their journey toward adapting to the consequences of climate change that are going to what we do in the energy space. I mean, there are certain things that are going to happen that are irreversible. So back in 2007, there were a group of eight of us, urban utilities, that came together and were what I would call early adapters. Susan Leal from San Francisco brought us together up at Hedge Hedgey. And we spent three solid days looking at the impacts of climate change on uh, water supplies, water reliability, uh, weather patterns, and came to the conclusion that our journey to begin to adapt and think about water resource management in a different way had to start immediately. So the ones that I reached out to predominantly in the book were what I would lovingly call co-conspirators from 2007, <laughs> who had begun this journey and who had given enough thought, had invested enough um, energy around rethinking water resource management that they could give the rest of the country a snapshot of the challenges, not only the challenges that lie ahead, but some of the tools in the toolbox that water utilities have in order to address those issues. I've become extremely passionate about um, the need for water utilities to step up their game and for us as a country to begin to have a conversation around adapting particularly our urban environments and um, also our agricultural environments to a very different reality. So it doesn't matter whether you're threatened by rising ocean levels as Miami is, which is going to destroy a lot of existing infrastructure or New York, um, storm surges like Sandy um, that cause uh, combined sewer over storm sewer overflows, or whether you have protracted droughts like we have in the West and um, in the Plains area of the United States, we're going to be impacted. I, I've said time and again, there's no safe place. There's no place we can all move to, and we will be spared the consequences of climate change. Something is going to change. We've ignored adaptation, and I fully appreciate and, and embrace the need for change in the energy space, but we've neglected the water space. And this is where our populations, our economies are going to feel the impact first. There are billions of dollars at risk of existing infrastructure, of decaying infrastructure that we've neglected and that becomes even more vulnerable 
when you overlay it with climate change. So the book is a snapshot in time that says this is where we are on the journey and it is time to have a larger conversation about a strategic approach nationally broken down into various regions on what the adaptation tools are that we have available to us where we still need to invest in order to make our communities resilient for the changes that lie ahead. I mean, countries like Singapore, countries like Israel have developed those national strategies and they thought through them very carefully because um, planning into a cone of uncertainty when you are not able to use that rear view mirror anymore that you've relied on for generations to determine what your water supply is going to be is very disconcerting. And it forces you to bring to bear a whole different set of tools than those that you've relied on in the past. Right. And, and you, you kind of mentioned the regionalization or the, the regional impacts of, of climate change in the book. Uh, has has uh, contributors from the four corners of the, the country. Were there any uh, regional differences or regional similarities that kind of struck you when you kind of went through what, what the contributors were writing? Yeah, I think we all suffered from, um, even here in the West where our systems are newer, um, when you go into some of the larger cities that have been around in the West for a while, one of the biggest problems we have is decaying infrastructure. And we can't build the same kind of infrastructure that we rely on um, for the last 150 years. But if, I mean, look at the consequences of, ha of dam failures, like the one that almost happened in California, where we've just neglected it. There, the same level of neglect that surrounds our bridges, our roads, um, in many instances, our airport infrastructure, also and hugely affects our water infrastructure. So there's an investment that's made, and finding a pathway um, to communicate with the public on what that investment needs to be and how to move forward in raising the necessary capital, be it through some kind of mixed bag of federal, state, local water rates in order to pay for that, the time for that is now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and that was kind of where one of the areas I was going to go into is, was water rates with all the, the crushing need for infrastructure, um, you know, one of the one of the things I see in my practice most often is a a reluctance on the part of political leaders to raise rates um, to pay for infrastructure to because the first thing that happens when when you don't raise rates is deferred maintenance and that just that just accelerates the infrastructure decay problem. So, uh, how how do you uh, see? you know, water leaders getting around the, this political problem of raising rates, you know, what, how are they going to do this to, to make sure that our infrastructure needs are met? You know, David, I guess Southern Nevada has a different perspective on it because unlike some of our neighbors, 
we've built four and a half, almost five billion dollars in new water infrastructure over the course of the last 15 years with not a dime of state or federal money in it. Water rates are paying for it 100%. But here are the lessons we learned. Number one is you have to be completely transparent. And this is something, and the cities don't like it when I throw this ugly skunk on the table. But I think if we're going to be able to have an honest conversation with our customers, constituents, however you want to label them, then we need to be honest with them. Uh, the cities, over the course of the decades, and in some instances it's 80, 100-year practice, have essentially used water and wastewater rates as a backdoor tax. They have put the infrastructure in, and then water rates and sewer rates were not set based on the need of the, quote, utility. They were, they were based on how much additional money do we need for police or fire city services. So when I, as a water rate payer in most jurisdictions in the United States, pay my water bill, not, I look at it very differently from my power bill, my cable bill, my gas bill, bill of service and need for to pay for that service and the infrastructure itself. With water, it hasn't been that way. Here in Southern Nevada, that was never one of the wisest things that happened was that the legislature and subsequently the local ordinances precluded anybody from being able to use water and wastewater rate. So it has the same direct relationship that a, that a power utility or a gas utility has. And so when you then bring your community in early to have a dialogue about what is it we need as a community. And I, this is a pet peeve of mine. We had this lovely habit of saying, okay, we have this pot of money, now what can we do with it? Rather than to say, what are the needs that we have as a utility and how are we going to generate the necessary revenue? If you bring your community into that conversation up front, and you have the various constituency groups represented, and you come to a common approach, it's amazing what you can do on the water rate side and how people will respond. Interesting. So uh, what about, you know, you, you mentioned the, the 4 to $5 billion of infrastructure that Southern Nevada paid. Was, was affordability ever an issue uh, in Southern Nevada? Because that's, so affordability is one of the issues that I see uh, becoming a bigger and bigger issue as the the utilities that are willing to increase rates to pay for new infrastructure to maintain existing infrastructure. Uh, it, we're starting to get away from like the the relatively cheap water, and so uh, what, what what have you seen in terms of affordability?
app that you can safely consume and delivers it to your home to where you turn on the tap and it comes out. That's what you're paying for. Now, affordability is also in how we structure it. I think the one-size-fits-all approach to financing water projects has to end. There are some opportunities where the private sector can come in and have an enormous impact and be a partner in creating the necessary infrastructure. I would point you to the chapter on the San Diego desalter. There are um, also, when you look at how we finance it, there have been some really creative things done in terms of stretching out the financing. We are paying for 80 to 100 year infrastructure with 30 year bonds. In Washington, D.C., uh, my friend George has begun to use centennial bonds. Now, yes, what the economist and the finance guy will tell you is that after 100 years, you will have paid a whole lot more for that infrastructure than you would if you'd have paid it off in 30 years. Well, if I wrote a check for my house that I bought for, say, $200,000, and I wrote a check and paid cash for that house, I'm going to pay a whole lot less than I do if I have a 30-year mortgage on it, correct? Because oh, yeah. um, there's the interest. And it's not about what you pay at the end of the day. It's to make it affordable. It's what's, what's the mortgage payment? What's the payment? What is the annual monthly payment that I have to absorb in my water bill? That doesn't mean as you have more financially lucrative times or, or other um, opportunities come along, you can't refinance along the way. But you have to match the financing to the kind of infrastructure that you're needing to build. Right. I agree with you completely. I think um, uh, the, the other component I think that we're starting to see a lot more of are some creative rate structures. You know, Philadelphia is, is rolling out this uh, income-based rate approach, essentially lifeline rates that if you, if you qualify, uh, you can essentially have your water rate uh, based on your income. Uh, you know, to... in order to promote conservation. That's the thing we always ran up against. Um, and at one point when the economy cracked, we realized that continually um, having, having these tiered rate structures was forcing us to constantly raise water rates because we couldn't pay our bills. And it wasn't soft bills, it was our, our um, our debt, our debt payments couldn't be met. So we had to separate it. You had to have some that was a fixed rate and some that was a variable rate. But I think every community looks at what issues they face socially in that community, and they try to work a structure out that makes it doable for that, for that area. Right, right. So uh, we, we've talked a lot about uh, water leadership in your, in your book, and, and and I've talked to some other uh, uh, folks who've written books and other water leaders, and and I'm just interested in, in one of those one of those people was David Sedlak of uh, Cal Berkeley who wrote Water 4.0. And in terms of you know kind of what you see as the next version of water coming along, what what when you look out, what do you see uh, coming down the pike? I see a lot of change coming down the pike. I 
see a lot of, and let's start at the local level. I think conversations like they have happened in Louisville, Kentucky, where the actual structure of the municipal utility changed and it became a municipal utility, but with a corporate structure. Um, essentially, Louisville Water has one shareholder, the city of Louisville, and so all of a sudden they can start functioning as a real utility uh, with asset management plans and everything else. I see that change coming. I see a greater need for regional resource planning, whether that is on the high water side as you would find at the, on the East Coast, or whether it is on the West Coast where there's water scarcity. I think there's also opportunities to build regional infrastructure rather than build individual local pieces that become far more expensive when you aggregate them than if you build one larger regional piece of infrastructure. I think people are gonna come at the infrastructure very differently. I think the thought, one of the, from an individual human standpoint, I think the notion that Americans have always had that water is limitless and that we live this um, blessed life of being able to use any and all water we want for any and all purposes, I think those days are coming to an end. You can't have a planet of nine billion people and continue the consumption patterns that have existed in the past. I think conservation will be a norm. I think technology will allow us to be far more miserly in how we use water. And I think there'll be a different ethic, just like there's a new ethic around energy emerging, there's a new ethic around water emerging. I think I will, there will be huge changes in how the urban and the agricultural sector um, interact with one another. I think there will be huge changes in the kind of water that the industrial sector uses. That's a conversation we've not even had, how much water various industries use. They use enormous amounts of water, but we don't see it. I mean, we don't realize that it's 1,300 gallons to make a single cell phone battery. So when you think about that in the aggregate, it's an enormous amount of water resources. So David, what I see is a tremendous amount of change at every single level of water management, water resource planning, water resource thinking, if you will, over the course of the next 50, 60 years. Well, thank you, Pat. You have been absolutely uh, fantastic and amazing in describing all these various facets of, of water and water leadership and, and kind of where you see us heading in the future. I really appreciate your time. And uh, uh, for those folks who want to find out even more about you and uh, the water problem, where can they go to find that information? Oh, I think if you, um, you can go on all kinds <laughs> of websites and we'll discuss the water problems in the various areas. Um, and there are some great, I think AWWA's got some great information. It depends on where you are. I would, I would tune in to and um, look at the websites um, for the utilities that are in your particular neighborhood and familiarize yourself with your own local resource, water resource issues.
Terrific. Well, Pat, again, thank you again so much for your time, especially uh, when, when your time is strained here with uh, your, your new granddaughter. So congratulations again on that and uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. All right. Bye, Pat. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Pat Mulroy. Uh, she is just absolutely fantastic. I, I really appreciate her carving some time out for me, especially after the birth of her granddaughter. Uh, it, was, uh, it, it was a great conversation, and as always, uh, enjoy speaking uh, with Pat. And, and really, she does a great job. Uh, get, like I said before the interview started, she does a great job getting her points across. She has very strong opinions, and you couldn't ask for more in a guest. So thank you very much, Pat. Really appreciate it. Um, with that said, you can check out the show notes for uh, this session of the Water Values uh, podcast at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 107. Uh, leave a comment on those show notes uh, or email me at david at thewatervalues.com uh, to let me know. Uh, what you think, you can also, you know, go to the website and just, uh, you know, shoot me uh, uh, and some information where it says in the contact Dave tab. Uh, you can tweet at me at DTM1993. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. And uh, again, as I indicated at the top of the show, feel free to leave a rating and a review on Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, whatever whatever podcast directory you listen on. I should have I should have said at the beginning that uh, with with Nick and Kevin's uh, five star uh, ratings, we are now up to fifty total ratings, uh, and ninety percent of those are five stars. So uh, thank you so much to all of you who have taken a few seconds of your day and gone on uh, to iTunes and and registered your uh, rating. Uh, please review the podcast as well as I indicated earlier. Uh, well, in closing. Please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to The Disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.